Welcome to Volume 2 of the Hunt Interviews. Uh, Volumes 2 and 3 in this series were actually one conversation. Over 90 minutes, almost 100 minutes of time that we spent visiting, and I had to divide that into to two volumes so that it could fit on on a CD so people could listen to it on CD. So we take a break here in the middle, and uh, you'll have to pick up the rest of the conversation on the second volume. Something that you're going to see here that is fascinating is uh, two things that I want you to listen to. Number one, I want you to pay attention to how the gospel transforms a culture. The gospel transforms a people and a tribe. And second, I want you to pay attention to how that transformation took place. What Gordon and Nancy did was not to come in and and impose Western or white American values upon a tribe of unsuspecting natives down in the Paraguay and jungles. They came in with the truth of the Word of God and began to teach them what Scripture said. And the Word of God and the Spirit of God did that transforming work in the hearts of those people. And you are going to find that amazing. Listen to the difference that the Gospel makes in a culture. Just one more thing before we get into this conversation. If you have not listened to Volume 1 of this series of Hunt interviews, you're going to want to go back and do that. You might even want to go back and do it again if it's been a while since you listened to that. Remind yourself of who Gordon and Nancy are, what they do, where they do it, who they serve, and how God called them to the mission field. With all of that introduction, here is Volume 2 of my interviews with Gordon and Nancy Hunt. Okay, this is our second interview with Gordon and Nancy Hunt of New Tribes Missions, and uh, we are going to talk a little bit about what it was like to to land in a culture where you do not know the language. So, Gordon, what what was that like? What was it like to land with the Manhui and not be able to speak their language? And and how did they how did they respond to that? And how long did it take? Now you get some of the sense, for those of you listening, you get some sense of what that is like for somebody who speaks English and no Manhui to talk to somebody who might speak Manhui, but not a word of English. But so I told you, I answered every question you asked me. In Manhui. Right. Right. And so I didn't understand that. Nobody listening understood that. <laughs> well, I thought you did. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you, now we, on the last interview, we talked about you You go into the mission field, you went to Paraguay, you went to the Manhui tribe. It was not the first contact with the Manhui when you arrived there. So they had been exposed to English-speaking people before. Spanish-speaking. Spanish-speaking. Yeah. Missionaries? Well, the missionaries speak English in their homes, but they didn't try to speak English around them or to them at first. Okay. It wasn't until our kids actually were there that they started to learn to hear a little bit of English. They right. communicated with Bolivians and Paraguayans and probably the German Mennonites from the town in Spanish. But in Spanish, A yeah. little bit here and there, some of them. They so was, they learned, yeah. and there was there was maybe one or two guys that that had a few English nouns. Uh, excuse me, Spanish nouns or that they knew the names like, of. Como se llama? The, what's yeah, it called? What's it what's called? Its name? Oh, I see. What's that named? So when when you showed up, you did not speak Manhui. No, not a word. Of and it. The, there was no Manhui written language. No. Strictly spoken language. Strictly spoken. So you're sitting. You you arrived there with your one newborn child. And you are how many months pregnant with the new next child? I arrived there with three children. Oh, you arrived. At, oh, that's right, because you were in the capital yeah, for a while. Yeah. So you arrived there with three children. You you show up in the village. You're sitting around a campfire in the evening. Ultimately, you want to translate the New Testament into the Manhui language. How do you go about learning the Manhui language? 
you listen a lot and you take lots of notes. And when we were, before we came to Paraguay, we were taught the phonetic alphabet, which is one mark on paper for every sound that the human uh, voice can say. And so every sound has got a symbol. No matter what they say, no matter what's important to them or not, every sound has got a symbol. So I would listen, and if I heard a phrase, I would write it down. You don't even know what a phrase is, but when they'd start and when they'd stop, you'd try to write everything down in the phonetic uh, code. Alf- alphabet or code, whatever you want to call it. Now, all those words, all those symbols are not necessarily important to them, nor are they important to, to learn them all, because that's not their alphabet yet. It's just the phonetics for what they've said. And you, you keep doing that over and over, and you watch, and you watch, and you watch, and you spend days writing oftentimes the same things down, but soon you see, you begin to see patterns in what you've written down. For instance, uh, well, just as an example, it's really helpful to watch how a mother interacts with a kid because, you know, she'll tell it to, to do something a lot of times. If a mother says to her kid, she says, uh, uh, Honey Papa and Nataasa woke at Yen. And so you write down as much as you can get of that. You can't get all of it, but you write down with H O Honey Papa, and you've lost it. So sometimes you can say, can you say that again in English or whatever language? You tell her to say it again or Spanish. If they understand you, they'll give you the same phrase. If they don't understand you, they'll give you any kind of gibberish. But eventually you'll get that phrase and you'll write underneath meaning. She told her son to do this. You don't know what it was yet, but you also watch how the son responds. And the response is what you write down for the meaning. He brought her a, a bucket. So she was probably asking him to bring the bucket. So you write down, this means bring, bring, me, a bring me a bucket. And But that's just a real simple explanation of what happened. And the, the next time you notice that she asked him to bring the fish yeah, but you or get, a roll. but you get the honey in there. And so obviously honey is the command, bring me. And you isolate that. You go down that for all kinds of stuff. Or the man will come in from the hunt and he'll uh, he'll give his wife his bow, and he'll say, Nahak. And you think, well, does that mean bow? Does that mean here? Does that mean... Put it away? Put it away. You have no clue what it means. But eventually, by process of elimination, or you've written down on your piece of paper and your notebook, we always had notebooks with us, you write down Nahak, N-A-H-A-K, that would be the phonetic uh, of it, and you write down here, question mark, my bow, question mark. Uh, put it away, question mark. And But when you hear it in other places and somebody says, Nahak, or if they hand you something, Nahak, oh, that can mean anything about. That in Bali does mean here. So pretty soon you scratch out the question mark and you write here. And and little by little you get the meanings for, for commands like that. And you do this for nouns, verbs. Everything. Everything comes the same well, way. Actually, I think so, what helped us a little bit is they knew in Spanish, what's that name? Right, that did help. I could so ask them the names. So you could get your nouns. I, w- I went around with everything asking what its name was, what its name was. Uh, I, I learned that sometimes that once in a while you get the, the, I kept getting the, it wasn't me, but somebody else kept getting the same word over and over again. And they kept saying, they kept, it wasn't Nahak, it was um, 
it was a yeshiki, a yeshiki, a yeshiki. Does yeshiki means what? Or is a yeshiki mean that's it? Or is a yeshiki just a common name for a generic name for all the trees? And you got to try and figure it out. Yeah, I figured it out. I finally got the word. The guy was saying, that's your finger. That's right. It's pointing to it. It's pointing it. Oh. <laughs> pointing out something. Pointing out something. He says, you're point- it was either your pointing or your finger, one or the other. So how many – then you had to – after you get some idea of the language itself, you try and learn the language by speaking it, being immersed in it. Right. I would repeat. I would tape. I did a lot of taping. I taped the words. I taped phrases and – uh as well as I was writing it down, I, I was doing the linguistics at the same time that I was teaching myself the language by doing, by asking them the names of everything. And pretty soon you realize that some of the sounds, some of those phonetic marks that you made on paper were not necessary because they automatically always said that particular uh, K in oh. that environment. In other words, a, an aspirated K that's all they did in that environment. So you could throw off the H on that. You see, a K is written K, high H, and then so on. But you could scratch out the H, and it was just K. That's Then it becomes phonemic. It's always the same. Uh, you took um, – they always had the glottal stop the in, in a, on the ends of all their phrases. So pretty you could throw that glottal stop off after you – you, so I was doing that analysis – I was doing some of it on paper, but I was doing some as I, as I learned the language as well. And how long did it take you to learn the language? Oh, man. To speak like a teenager, probably over five years. You know, a, a teenager vocabulary, so to speak, but not everything. Or maybe a 10-year-old, maybe five years. So what type of – the language itself, what type of vocabulary is there? Is it is it a big vocabulary language or very limited and small? Okay, I have in my – in my dictionary, I started a dictionary immediately. I'd always put the meanings in my computer. Once once we had computers. Before that was in notebooks. Books, notebooks. Well, once we got computers, I was able to set up a database for all the language. And I have 19,000 words right now in it. That's up to date right now. It's 19,000. But in that 19,000, we talked. We told you guys earlier about how the verb carries the the verb already carries the subject it already carries the aspect it carries a lot of stuff built into the verb so you've got all this stuff already built into all these verbs in one word it's a, so it's a verbal language it's a verbal language yeah and so we've got we've got probably the equivalent of about maybe 30 or 40,000 words just in that 19,000 that i have already in the dictionary and like the articles uh there's 28 articles where in english we have i think we have a and an and the. So we have definite article, indefinite article. They have 28 of them. So give me an example of how they would use an article and what what that article communicates. I say, I say uh, <clears throat> my wife is sitting on a chair. Okay. If it was Manhui, the a would communicate. It would be Hana because it's a female chair. Okay. If chair is female. So you'd already in the article be telling me that it was a female and you'd already off, you'd have that same word, but have to tell me that it was a, it was insight, and you're not touching it, so you wouldn't use the la, you'd use the hana, uh, and it's not in the past, so that's why using hana. If it was if it was in the past and you weren't seeing it right now, you would you'd use the hapa. So it just it goes on and on. Every every article tells me uh, gender, insight or out of sight, known or unknown, uh, moving or not moving, and. Uh, and seen or unseen. 
Alive or dead. Or alive or dead. All of that in the article. All of that in one little word. So then, do they, if they want to talk about a dead dog, then they use a different one. Yeah. They don't use, they don't, the, the article A would communicate, or, or the article for before the dog would communicate. It would take boy or girl, dead, yeah. Male or female dog. Yeah. Whether it's seen or unseen. Unseen or unseen, dead or alive. And whether it was alive or dead. Yeah. Well, so they wouldn't even have or, to, moving or still. they wouldn't even have to use the word dead, for no. instance, because no, that's because all, it's just a dog. They can tell me something with an article without even saying dead, and we already know it's dead. Just well, in the article, yeah. And where it's at if it's moving. And where it was, or if you're seeing it now or not. 28 different articles. 28 of them. And if you've not seen it and you're talking about the dead dog that so-and-so saw. Then it's hearsay and it then becomes it's a different one. and it's a different article. Yeah. Because you've not seen it. Yeah. And that we had a problem with that in the New Testament because in the New Testament, we had to decide whether Mark had seen Jesus or not. And I, I don't know, some commentaries say oh. that he was a part of his life. Some say he wrote it not seeing him. Same with Luke. Luke saw certain things and he didn't see th- certain things. Like the book of Acts, for instance. The you get to Acts. chapter 16 before Luke is Comes a personal the eyewitness to everything going on. So he had, <clears> And I had to actually change it. I had to use a uh, hearsay article talking about Jesus and talking about things that he saw until I got up to uh, that that portion. And then he could use the, the, the actual, the, he had seen it in the past. He'd, he'd actually experienced it. So you use two different articles for everything, even in that book. Mark's the same way. Luke is actually that way, too. Wow. John is that way, too. John has some unseen, talking about Jesus, and then seen. Because John didn't come on the scene right away, either. And some things John wasn't privy to. And he wasn't. so He, he wasn't use, theirs, but he's relating things that happened, exactly, though he wasn't there. So he has to use hearsay. And I had to I had to figure some of that stuff out. And some of you just have to guess because you really, it, the, the context doesn't really say. And you just pick pick which one would fit the context the best in that sense. And that's just the article. So how does the, how does the verb, how does it being a verbal language affect translation? What do you run up against? Well, it's, it, it really affects, and I was, we were talking about the book of Hebrews earlier, and that's what I'm working in right now. And for instance, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the, the chapter that we're so familiar with on the faith that gives us the definition of faith, it says that faith is the, the uh, evidence of things hoped for. And, and you've got, you got four or five different, in English, we have what we call abstract nouns. Faith is an abstract noun. Hope is an abstract noun. Evidence is an abstract noun. The Manhui can't say abstract nouns. So you have to take all those nouns and change them into a verbal action. And for the word faith, you can't say faith by itself. You can't say believing. You have to say to believe in God because God is the object of your faith. We all know that. So you have to add all that into the Manhui just to get the proper meaning there. So you're you're really not translating word for word in the sense that we have an English word here, and now we just find out what the Manhui word for that is. That's right. And then works. you just put it in there because that'd make translation easy. Actually, you use a computer to do that. Yeah, once you once you create your language, your and vocabulary, you just, you just put the words in and hit a button, and boom, you'd have a translation. But I, it wouldn't make I'd any love sense that. to the Manhui. Wouldn't make any sense to him. It wouldn't make any sense to us because in Manhui, when they have hot peppers, they talk they talk about them being hurtful. They, yeah. We talk about them being hot. They say it hurts. Spanish talks about biting. Says it bites. The biting peppers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. why they're pica. Pica means to bite. Yeah. It means it bites. Well, that's how we would translate it back if we wanted to understand it. But really, it just means it's hot. 
So give me an, give me an example of, of taking something that is a noun that they don't have a word for and translating that into a verbal form other than believing. Okay, for a good one would probably be grace. Grace is a is an English na- noun, but it is an abstract noun. We understand it in English perfectly well. We know what grace is. We should anyway. Yeah. <laughs> in Manhui, you have to say that which was given without any uh, given to us without any uh, any part any part of action on our part. We didn't have to work for it or strive for it. So do you have one word? No. That you that, can. I have the whole phrase. So every time grace appears, you have to say that which is not worked or strived after, but is free. Every time. So why why wouldn't you just create a Monhui word for that and then teach them what that word would be? What well, what would that do if you tried to do that to the Monhui? Um, I have tried to to make up words, thinking that 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 would possibly work, and a lot of times they'll say, "Oh, you mean you're trying to say this?" And they give me this long phrase. <laughs> They know what I want, but they say, but we don't have one word for that. But if you say this, that we know exactly what it is. And grace was kind of like one of those because we tried to, we tried to say it a different way, not a one-word thing, but a different thing. And and once they understood grace in their hearts, then they gave us this other one, and it, it, to them it meant a whole lot more than what we were trying to make. Once they catch the concept, it's it's perfect. It fits perfectly. Uh, another one was. Um, uh, not sacrifice. A tabernacle. Uh, no, uh, the word for uh, an, an altar where we sacrifice something. See, because they had no concept of sacrifices in their culture, in their animistic uh, worldview, there was no need for sacrifice. There is no sacrifice. Nothing is given. To, nothing is sacrificed. Nothing is given on behalf of somebody of else. Something else. Nothing. And so we had to we had to come up with a concept. For even back when when uh, when Adam and, and and Moses and Abraham all sacrificed, and so we used a word for this for the altar that meant the uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what the word was. It was the the giving place and or the killing place is what we used the killing place. Well, that was okay at the beginning because it was always an animal that was killed. But when you go down the way, it meant more than that because it was not just the killing place. It was the giving place because it was what, what Moses offered to God or what Abraham offered to God as a, as a gift. And so we had to add that in. So we changed it from killing place to giving place. And they pretty well understand now what that means, even though it's foreign to them. And even when you talk about the, the altar in, uh, in some of the epistles, you can give that, but you have to give a little more definition to it because it's now a, uh, it's a typology rather than the actual place. So they can have one one article that communicates a paragraph worth of information. Exactly. But then you try and take an abstract noun. Simple noun in English. A simple noun in English and put that into Monhui. It becomes and a that long, one word becomes a paragraph. A par- of almost a paragraph sometimes, yeah. yeah. So it's, right. it's the opposite of what we would be used to. Yeah. What do What, what is it like to communicate with them? Using verbs in the context of uh, you're having a conversation. How do they? Um, this is what we're talking about at dinner. What mm-hmm. when when you step into the middle of a conversation, they begin to drop off words and assume context. Oh, it's yeah. not always that's not always necessarily there. Right, where they understand the context already. There's no need for subject. There's no need to name anybody. 
There's no need for object. They don't need to tell who has done to what because they already understand the context. Pronouns. So there's, there's no need for the pronouns because they understand who it's a he or she. So they'd just be spitting off something and I am left in the cold. I have no idea what they're talking about until I can catch. And I often say, who? What was that done to? Who was that done to? And they'll tell me and right away everything falls into place. Boom, boom, boom. So, so we got a, let's have, we're having a conversation about the, the boy gets bitten by a dog. Bit. Dog. Bit. Yeah. Or if we're talking about the example you gave earlier was uh, a dog bites a snake. Yeah. I have no clue who bit what because it can be they can either say uh, the dog bit the the snake or the snake bit the dog. And uh, I know something was bit, but I don't know because they flip the they flip the subject and the object around all the time. It doesn't matter. They just say dog snake bite. Yeah. But if they put if they drop in the article, then I know which one it attaches to and then I can tell. So if they say... Then you can tell who got bit. Fuck yeah. If you're having a snake. conversation about the dog biting the snake... We get it then. Then, and after a while, then that begins... All of that other right. stuff that qualifies it, that you and I use pronouns and articles, begins to disappear and they just start using verbs. Right. Or you can ask the question, who was bit? And they'll, and they'll give you immediately... So then it falls into place as well. In Manhui, I would say, Debatokak, uh, who was bit? And I'll say, oh, the dog was bit. So I know, okay, it's not the snake that was bit, it was the dog. So it answers. But you can't tell that from their sentence. Not a right away. And no. they, they would assume that you're understanding from the entire context. From the context, yeah. Everything that they're saying. Exactly. So the more you talk about a subject, the less and less they actually have to say. They actually don't need to say it at all. Yeah. And that, and again, that really is hard for translation purposes because you want the translation to, to, to be understood. And when I'm working with a translation helper, and he gives me back the whole paragraph. He's left out a lot of the a lot of the the important articles, or a lot not the articles, but he's left out the important pronouns and subject, and it's, sometimes he's the object, assuming. because he understands it already, and he he's assuming that you understand it, and so he gives you back this whole paragraph without any subject or object in it. And I say, wait a minute. I said, are are the readers going to understand who this was done to? He says, well, you named him in the paragraph before. I say, but now in this paragraph, well. We maybe we should put it in again, and so you're actually forcing it where it's not possibly needed, but because of readers are sometimes slow, it may they they want to fix it so the readers will understand, but they don't always have to have it. Hmm. And I I run across that all the time in translation, especially narrative stories. They can drop off, they can put the subject in at the very beginning of the story, and then they can talk for for, for and a half an hour on that subject all the way through. In fact, in fact Luke 16. In the story of the, uh, the rich parables. man and Lazarus, yeah. some of these stories, they can leave out all that stuff because it's already understood at the beginning. There but, was a rich man, there was Lazarus. Exactly, but the problem with readers is that they read so slow, they're beginning to find out that they do need to add it more than their language really requires. Because by the time the reader gets to the bottom, he's lost who's done what to whom. And so then they're adding them in now a little bit more than they used to. And so you're, when you're translating... You're really striving not to give a word-for-word -word equivalent. Right. You're really striving to communicate the meaning of the text. It's what the what the original readers understood is what you want the Manhui to understand as well. Right. So you have to. You want them to get the sense, the understanding the understand of that text. The sense, the meaning. Yeah. yeah. There's a phrase that I've heard used that the meaning of scripture is the scripture. Yeah. You can have all of the words represented, but if you don't get the meaning of it, you've lost you've, them. You yeah. do have not heard the word voice of God speaking. That's right. I think that's real clear, real true.
let's talk about some of the cultural things that go on now to get kind of an idea of how you learn the language. It took you how many years, do you say? Eight years to learn it and then begin translating. Yeah, it was more like to translate, it was more like eight years. To to actually begin teaching, it was only like four years. Because teaching, you don't always need to know exactly what, what uh, like like you would with the scriptures. But to actually translate, it was it was quite a bit longer. And so you're um, after you started translating, you had already been there an, eight years to learn the culture. So when you showed up there, let's talk a little bit about what their what their what their culture was like, what their lifestyle was like, and how radically different it is from us. So you you your first day in the tribe, you walk in, you set up a, a hut, a tent. We moved into a house. You moved into a house. There was another did. missionary couple that had to go home. They had okay. to leave because of their son needing help in the states. Very simple so, house. But then, you're, then you okay. got out, you walk around with the people, and what, what do you see? What was their lifestyle like? Give me a description of tribal life with the Monhui day one. When we first moved there, yeah. it was very primitive. The children had no clothes on. Most children had absolutely no clothes on. They all wore brownish clothes, which I never could figure out how they all got the same color until I realized it was the color of the dirt on the ground. They, um, I don't know, what other kind of impressions? They, they jabbered incessantly all the time. They talked all the time, and I couldn't understand the thing they were saying. They seemed very friendly. They laughed a lot. They did yeah, laugh. They were very, and they were always very pointing friendly. their fingers at us and laughing. Was it was a hostile, was a hostile trial? No, 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 very friendly, very funny. Open to outsiders? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And willing to get to know you and oh, willing yes, to help you out. They loved our kids and everything. Yeah. They were, they just, but they were very primitive. They were very dirty people. They did not smell very well. They smell they, like smoke. They never smoke. brushed their teeth. No, they didn't know what toothbrush was. No. They never combed their hair at that time. Either. No, the women's hair was not not very long because probably because it broke off, I suppose, well, from the dirt. Well, no, but the, it, a lot it was of just them. like you know, going every well, which way. But men, the women also little... cut their hair back then when they're when when people died they always cut their yeah, hair. Yeah, there was so. a, I remember seeing one woman who had her hair all chopped off, just just little pieces her here. Her husband there. died. And that was we found out later the reason they did that was cuz cuz of a it's death. A way of mourning. Yeah. Sackcloth and ashes mm-hmm. kind of thing, yeah. But they 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 were uh, they was they would every night we'd hear we'd hear them chanting somewhere off in the distance and it was a eerie sound. And they disappeared before darkness came. They never stayed they were around after dark. Of the dark. What were they scared of in the dark? The, the evil spirits. Mm-hmm. So they, they were they believed in supernatural things. Oh yeah, evil Very spirits. Yeah. yeah. And what were their what was their religion? Animistic. That is their religion, basically, is evil spirits and or animism. Which you, it's not real. You wouldn't call it religion, but I it guess it's a worldview. It it's a, a worldview. A worldview of yeah. what yes. was happening. Right. It, you could say it was a religion. I guess. Yeah. So did they have since they don't have abstract nouns, do they have a concepts for things like sin, um, righteousness? What did they understand about sin when you showed up? They had they actually had we found this out it was later when we were actually teaching on the laws when I would tell them that uh, uh, you know I say well you guys and I'd already learned some of their sin or I'd already learned what one sin was I says I says when you guys get mad I says is that good? No no it's not good. I said, when you, uh, I said, well, yeah, I says God sees that as, 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 he calls that doing something that, that's, that's wrong. That, that's our word for sin, something that's wrong. What God does not approve of. 
I said, well, what about um, what about when you uh, tell somebody something that's not true? I said, is that is that bad? And they kind of snickered. I go, well, is it bad? No, it's okay. Lying was fine. Lying was fine. I said, well, God also sees that as something against him too, because he says in his command, you know, you, you're not to tell some somebody, you're not to lie, you're not to tell an untruth. I said, what about when a man looks at a woman and desires her that's not his wife? Well, that's fine, that's okay, they said. I said, well, God also sees that as a sin too. And and the, the more I started telling them, the more I realized that there was only two sins that they actually had. One was being stingy, which isn't even in the Bible. <laughs> Actually, in a sense, it is, but it's not listed out. It's the in the opposite of generosity here. Exactly, and the other is getting angry. Those two, are, and they're not even in the Ten Commandments. But so those, the, those the, the idea only, of breaking the Ten Commandments is entirely new to them. Completely new to them. Yeah. So when we we talk about the law of God written on <clears throat> on your heart, Romans one, Romans two, they right. had they had these ideas of what was sin. Right. But did they have, was their conscience active because of well, the things that they thought they yes, were telling them were sinful? Yes and no. They still knew intrinsically that to look at a woman and to desire her when they already had a wife, they knew that there was something not quite right with that. And that's why they snickered when I told but them. But they wouldn't call it sin. No, they wouldn't call it or sin. Or they wouldn't call it something wrong. Right. That's they recognized, the, though, that their conscience was active. Yeah. And, and same thing with stealing, same thing with lying. All of those things, but this took later on when I would yeah. talk to a believer then. I said, when we told you about those things, how did you really feel and think? He said, we knew those things were wrong already. But they just they didn't have them as part of their, they their culture. They weren't culturally said. wrong. Yeah. Immorality, was that no problem. wrong to them? No, no problem. Mm-hmm. So was immorality rampant among them? Mm-hmm. Yes. But there were certain things of immorality. Incest was incest very was bad. they didn't like incest that. was was a was a taboo more they would but the way they would handle that was that they would make terrible fun of a person who was a child of incest, a product of incest. But everybody would laugh about it, but they didn't condemn them for it. So when you showed up at the at the tribe, was it were people walking around in what we would consider immodest dress? Um only at night when they were sitting around their fires, the women would never wear anything on top. Because and we found out the reason for that was they wanted to feel the heat from the fire. It had nothing to do with, with any other thing other than the fact that they could feel the fire better through their, without their clothes on. Felt, they felt warmer. Right, felt warmer, yeah. Can't feel the heat when you've got something between you and the fire. But it had nothing to do with morality or immorality. It was just that's the way. They, and men and women together sitting around a fire with uh, very little clothes on, no problem. So what are some of the translation hurdles that you've had to overcome? You're translating a concept into Manhui from English, like obey your parents, for instance, and yet you're culturally going to run up against something where they have no categories for these things. Yeah, tell them about the one we were talking about earlier, about about obeying your parents. Well, when he was trying to translate with this one young man, he had young kids, and, and he was saying, you know, trying to translate or work on this idea of teaching your children to obey you. Ephesians six one, right? And our, he, our family verse. And, and he um, he was talking, and, and Gordy used the phrase of making your children obey you. And the it's guy, actually from Timothy, where, where right. the elders told to oh. his children to be in elders. control. Yeah. He said to keep your kids. He says, but if we translate it that way, it means that it's the parents that's got the job to make them obey. And he said, that's what we want. 
He said, I, and know, he says, I just can't do but that. But yeah. at that time, he was beginning to understand a lot. And he says, that's what you mean. It's our job to make them obey. He'd never heard that before. He had never realized or heard that before. Never even in a category to think that way. Mm-hmm. No. And, but and it's li- it's neat yeah. to see their little light bulbs coming on. You mean we have to do it? Yeah. And that is one thing in the culture of the Ron Hui is that the children are in control. They are the ones, when a child gets to be close to a teenager, we see it, that they rule, and the parents are afraid of them. In fact, we even had one parent tell us that he was afraid his kid was going to shoot him with a slingshot if he didn't do what he said. And uh, later on that changed, obviously, when they were begin to realize that they were supposed to be in control of their children. But it was hard at first. They always blame the children, too, by the way. Children get blamed for everything done wrong, that everything happens bad, all the thieving, all the stealing, all the broken windows. It's always the kids. <laughs> and we've actually found out that a lot of times the parents, and these are not talking about Christians, we're talking about just the tribal. some of the, the tribal people. A lot of times it's the parents that put the kids up to break in the window so they can get in and steal something. But it's always the kids. But stealing is not a not a sin for no, the, from them. No. But if you get angry about somebody stealing from you, that's a sin. Yeah. Or the only you actually, if you get caught, you know, then it becomes wrong too. <laughs> if you get caught stealing, as long as you don't get caught, it's not, not it's wrong. It's not wrong. Yeah. That's pretty American culture now, I think too. <laughs> yeah. They believed in uh, good spirits mm-hmm. and well, bad spirits. They weren't always sure that they were good, but. They were the ones that they would manipulate to do what they wanted. And sometimes they weren't even sure what's a spirit or what's not a spirit. Oh, yeah. If I go out hunting and I shoot at a jaguar and it doesn't hit the jaguar, it was probably a spirit. Evil spirit that, mm-hmm. made, that made their own. And if I fell out of the tree, uh, an evil spirit pushed me out of the tree. But yeah. they weren't real. Real sure all the time. What did they have a category for good spirits, helpful spirits? Um, actually, the more I inquired about that, the more I began to realize that I don't think they thought any of them were really good, because all spirits did evil. It was the ones that they caused to do evil to somebody else was good for them, but not necessarily a good spirit. Hmm. And they were afraid of a lot. They were afraid of of most of them. A lot of spirits. They were. Sounds in the night they couldn't describe. Sounds in the woods that they couldn't mm-hmm. describe were always attributed to evil spirits. They lived in fear. Oh, they definitely. They lived in yeah. terrible fear. That's, that's one of the one main of the things, things they were thankful for all the time. Yeah. All they the are always time. Praising, praising God that they're no longer afraid of the evil spirits. Which is, it will be interesting to see how the young people grow up because a lot of the younger ones never knew that kind of fear. Yeah. They don't know that kind of fear at all. Yeah. The newer generation doesn't. Not the way their parents did. Is that even with the non-Christians? Do they, are they, is it starting to be a cultural thing? The non-Christians, I don't think, are near as afraid afraid of them. They'll go out at nighttime and it is the influence. You know, they're not, but they're, there's still some evil spirits they're really afraid of. There's one evil spirit that we found out that even a lot of the believers were very afraid of still. And he was called the Tzemtiki. And what happens is if you kill a deer out in the woods, and instead of bringing it home and sharing it with everybody, you eat it out in the woods because you're so hungry, and you leave the bones and you come home with nothing, then you you can cause this Tzemtiki to come after you because he's the spirit that keeps them being sharing people. 
And we had a guy who was a believer. He thought he heard one in the woods. Okay, he obviously he'd shot something and apparently he'd started to eat it. And he came ripping home and he was scared, really scared. And they asked him what happened. He says there was a tempticky out there in the woods. So is that the word you would use for Satan in the translation? No, no. Satan is the meat eater. The meat eater. That's what because they they believe that evil spirits eat the dead bodies once they're in the ground. And they know that now that that's not true. They know that it's just the, 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 the body dissolves. But because when we described what Satan was like, that was the most, the, that was the worst thing that could happen, I guess. And so they attributed that to Satan. And he became that. But now they understand. Now it's just a word that means Satan. It doesn't mean the mediator anymore. But that's what it meant at first. Do they not use Satanus sometimes? And they use the Spanish that's word. The Spanish they use word the Spanish Satan. word often. Okay. So, and they also sometimes say the chief of the evil spirits, which is that's the one we stick with most of the time. Chief of the evil spirits. Yeah. They have a category for demons. You understand that? They seem to. Yeah. Uh, they have hierarchy in demons. Yeah. As well as some angels too. I think of some of the words, the the words that we've had a struggle with translating, and the the concept of morals was something that in uh, was it in Timothy? I can't remember the passage now exactly, but but Paul is telling the believers to to uh, that they that the women need to dress to not dress immorally. I think that's the passage. And I could not get a concept of what moral and immorality was, or a concept of of not moral. Um, what's the word I want? Modesty. Modesty. Immodest. Immodest. What's the concept of immodesty and modesty? And because every culture has different levels of what they are, I didn't know what the Manhui's understanding of modesty was. And so I tried to explain it, and what we came across with finally was. He, that Paul was to tell these young women to not dress in a way that would cause the young men to look at their bodies and desire them. And that's that's modesty, basically, in the, the way we, we came across it. So they're growing in modesty. They seem to be, even more so now. And uh, the one about uh, what, what, what they finally told me, what, a, what an immoral woman was, or a, or a woman of right. the street, a prostitute, and it, it was a woman that wore red lipstick. That's how they could tell a prostitute. So if they had come to the average American church and dropped in the middle of imaginary marriage, they would have thought they were filled with prostitutes. If they wore bright red lipstick, you'd have to be real careful, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, it was just because that was the, the town that they would go visit. That's what the women, the prostitutes, obviously stood out with red lipstick. Right. You know, So that became their only understanding. What else from the culture that is worth noting? Well, they have built in, because they're a, a tribe that depends so much on each other, uh, and because one of the sins is to be stingy, they already had sharing built into their culture. And, and in a sense, it's almost you almost think, oh, well, I don't have to teach on this, because they already do it. And that's not true. Because it's it's not it's not a it's their cultural worldview that's telling them to share with one another, and if if we didn't share, then we're actually sinning in in their own culture. So you have to completely go about it from a different a different point of view in order to make help them understand that sharing is is uh, is a Christian 
value that we're to do, not not a Monhui thing. Though they are very sharing people. Where was it Jeff talks about? They they have a shame culture. Shame. Mm-hmm. He's always talking yeah. about the the. Yeah, uh, one of their their so and their social control is is uh, gossip and shame. Hmm. It's not it's not uh, policemen or laws, so to speak. It's shaming each other into doing something they want them to do. The the, the wives would do that to their husbands all the time, or they'd say, uh, "You were looking at so and so." They'd tell their husband that he was looking at another woman, a young unmarried girl, and. Uh, that even if he wasn't, it, it was so hard for him. So he would just go around doing everything his wife wanted. So he wish he wouldn't talk about him, tell other people that that's what he's doing. Or he made sure he didn't go anywhere. Or he wouldn't go anywhere. In fact, they wouldn't even go to church. Yeah, because obviously you're like because they're sitting in a circle and there's a young girl sitting across the. And if the she island. didn't want him to go to church. That's how she kept him home from church. Yeah. Hmm. And then we had a, a situation that where one of the leaders was was being um, gossiped about. And they tell her, the wife of this leader, that, that he was looking at another, you know, I saw him looking at me, she'd say, or something like that, and tell the wife. And, you know, a lot of times what a wife would do then would be get mad at her husband, leave him or go off for a little while until, you know, he kind of paid for it and came after him. Mm-hmm. But she refused to listen to that, listen to did. the gossip. This one She refused to listen to the gossip. And yeah. stood by her husband. and She says, I'm not going to believe what they're saying about you. Because I don't believe it's true. They're just trying to get you to, to, to do what to they want you to do. stop teaching is what they really wanted because yeah. it was just so different to them. She right. was the, one of the first Christian women that took a stand against the gossip. And uh, to this day now, she's, she's much, quite an awesome lady. a much uh, stronger person. And they are a stronger couple and because they have withstood that that community pressure or that cultural pressure to bend and to do what the community wants. Do you have people in the community that resent the entrance of the gospel and what that has meant to the culture? Well, not out in an outspoken way, but yeah, because of just those very things, I think that's true. Some of the unbelievers that have said they absolutely do not want anything to do with it are some of the ones that are doing some of the gossip. And so you wouldn't say they're trying to get. It's just Satan working in that in that area is all. But yeah. in their in their kind of situation, let's say we're you know this community here, we're a tribe of Monhui Indians, and you're the pastor. Well, you know, I'm not a pastor, and he's not a pastor, and who do you think you are, kind of thing. And so we're going to go work on your wife there to knock you, to down, you down, so that you can be the same as us. So you're way above us. You're lifting yourself up. By putting yourself in a position of leadership. Yeah. That's right. And or even doing that. something, even if you don't put yourself there, by no, doing something in right. leadership. Yeah, and they it, resent that because they don't have it and they can't do it, so you shouldn't be able to either. But I think they've really begun to learn that he doesn't have, I mean, he doesn't have the pastor that they did that to him. He doesn't have an attitude of, I'm better than you. Yeah. He's very willing to acknowledge where he sins and everything. It's just, and, and that's helped, but his wife's standing by him. Has really, has helped, really helped. Yeah. But, I mean, we don't, we probably do it some ways in our culture and stuff. I mean, let's but, face but these, it. Those people struggle in, in ways that we don't even understand in those right. areas because it's so strong in their culture. But so even, strong. even in our we culture. Can, we can move to another church, you know, if we have a right. that. But we in our culture, if I don't like Deidre or if I'm jealous of her, I'm going to tear her down to somebody else. Yeah. I'm going to tell my friend over here how she does such and such, or she doesn't listen to her husband, or she's real sassy to her husband. I'm going to, if I don't like you as a pastor, I'm going to tear you down. 
So the and culture, they're just negative. They're just they're very, negative. very, very negative. Destroying each other. Right. Very, very much so. They would never say something good about somebody else. Never. That's absolutely unheard of. How about something encouraging? No. They do not. That's one of the things that, that we see lacking still today in the church is encouraging one another. It's Although just, just we beginning to see a teeny bit. Yeah. And they've, we've got a couple of examples of them actually encouraging our son. Our son, yeah. And, and they've encouraged him before. And like me as well. Remember that time you were out there just recently, was it? They were getting after you. Somebody got mad at you because yeah. you were so much in the office working on translation. And not out visiting. And not out visiting. And, oh, I don't know how many guys came over and said, don't listen to him. We're glad you're we're in We're glad there. you're doing it because we want to read the Bible. That's yeah. unusual. And, and that was an unheard of thing just a few years ago because it was always negative, always tearing down. I get a lot of attacks from them telling me what I should be doing instead of translating, but not anymore because they, they begin to realize that, that uh, they can encourage. Huh. And, and it's it, and I think it's because they've grown past the idea that they knew that the, the word of God said you're not to lift yourself up in pride. And so they were actually thinking that you're not to lift somebody else up either because then that was making him prideful. Nobody but God. Right. But now they're beginning to realize that that, that that's not necessarily true. You can lift somebody else up to encourage them because that's part of the, the encouragement of the brother. But they, they're they learning that. It's very slow in coming. Earlier, before we were talking, with the, when the recorder wasn't going about, the how, how you've seen the teaching progress mm-hmm. in the church. They started off with the Bible. You were their teacher. Right. And you were teaching narrative, going through the book of Genesis and Exodus and the Gospel of Mark. And now you've now that teaching has been turned over to the the natives that they have people within the own Monhui tribe that are teaching and preaching. When you set about teaching them to teach their own people, and what did that look like? How did that how did that transition happen? And yeah. what type of teaching do they do? All right, I'm going to stop right there, at least for this interview or for this half of that interview. As I said, the rest of that conversation is on the uh, very next interview that I did with Gordon and Nancy Hunt, the second half of this conversation. I told you this was interesting. And listen, there is more good stuff to follow as well. So get volume three of the Hunt interview and enjoy the rest of our conversation.